reckoning and renewal they came from the creed right? um, so he will, he will come again and then I believe in the resurrection of the body and he will come again to judge the living and the dead and I believe in the life everlasting there are four topics just a bit of trivia for you so now when you say the creed in church and you say those four things you can remember our weekend away um, so now we come to uh, talk about the reckoning, the judgement and uh, as kind of came out earlier this morning I was a, an Anglican minister in Australia and I went to uh, the church that I was the minister at when I finished college and it was one of those situations where you come to a new church and you don't, you know, you're meeting people, you're getting the lay of the land it was a new area, I'd never lived there before and uh, there, was a, there was another little church that kind of met in the local primary school. You could, you could throw a, a, you know, a stone from our church to this primary school um, and they were kind of an independent church uh, and very, very small but um, you know, faithful. And I, I met the guy who ministered there. He was a part-time minister. He held a job and so on but he basically ran the whole thing and drove the whole thing. And lovely Christian guy. Anyway, as you kind of you know, get to know a place, you learn the, the history and the stories. And what had happened was this guy and his family and a few of these other people that met in this other church all used to be part of our church. Um, but with the minister before my minister, so several years ago, um, uh, he'd had a problem with some of the teaching in our church. Particularly, he'd had a problem that the minister had been talking about judgment and hell. And he thought that actually we shouldn't, shouldn't ever talk about these things. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's not good, it doesn't help people, puts people off. Um, if, we're, if we're thinking about um, reaching people, this kind of message, it's, it's really actually repulsive um, to Christianity. Now, I'm not sure if he um, believed in those truths. He, he was a really nice guy. Um, and um, I think a, a real Christian, genuine Christian person and he was interested in mission, you see, he was interested in mission but he wanted to kind of jettison this part of the Bible's teaching and that kind of raised the question for me, is it possible just to you know, push this to the side? Uh, can, can you do Christianity without ever talking about this or... Um, you know, thinking about judgment and retribution for sin. Um, another situation happened when I was in ministry in that uh, we used to do scripture teaching in uh, different schools. So in Australia, it's a bit different to England. The, the local church has a right to go and teach for half an hour each week in every state school. And so... Um, the ministers or, and, and people from the congregations all volunteer and they go and teach scripture. Well, what happened, we, we kind of combined with other churches in our area to cover five different schools, so we had this huge team. Um, my, my boss got a phone call from an irate parent whose seven-year-old daughter had come home telling them that if, the, if they didn't believe in Jesus, they were going to burn in the lake of fire. And so on and so forth and this, this father rung up and said what's going on in scripture? You know, how come my <coughs> seven year old is being taught this? Um, 
And my, my boss um, realised that, that the teacher was from a different church and kind of wasn't teaching the actual scripture material and so on um, and kind of dealt with it generally. But those kind of two stories, they raise a couple of issues for us about this topic. The first is um, that it's actually a very offensive topic um, to people in the world and to Christians. It's hard to grapple with. Uh, it's, um, it's difficult to get your head around and sometimes doesn't quite fit with the picture that we'd like to have of God. Um, the second thing is that uh, it needs to be dealt with sensitively. So probably um, a, for a seven-year-old, there are ways to, to speak about this that are, are completely inappropriate and probably that was the case for that class. Um, but the fact is that um, Christianity at its heart, at its very heart, it is a message of salvation, is it not? And the point of uh, Christianity being a message of salvation is that you need to be saved from something. And so uh, to, to kind of just jettison the message of what you're saved from really undoes part of the structure of Christianity. And uh, actually in the Bible there's this, the, the story of, of judgment and of retribution is quite clear. Jesus talks more about this than about, uh, about heaven actually. Um, people have kind of done the maths on that. And so if the Bible is unashamed to speak about this then we ought to be unashamed as well. We ought to at least um, deal with it. Um, speak gently, speak sensitively, uh, but we need to speak of it. Um, because what people who try and jettison this, and certainly opponents of Christianity and so on, they kind of think that this is a, a message of the church trying to win people into submission. But actually we see in the pages of the New Testament that the way that Jesus speaks about it, this is a reality check from a loving saviour to a, to a world that has an awful destiny without him. So, so kind of with that introduction and acknowledging that this is going to be a bit of a, a sober talk and a heavy talk, what does the Bible have to say? And I've kind of divided it into two things, which is judgment and, and hell that we'll be talking about in this talk, reckoning and retribution. So first of all, judgment. Um, Hebrews 9 just it says we're all destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So what is it that we can say about this judgment? What does the Bible have to say about it? Well, I've just got a few different questions that might help us open up the topic. The first is, who's going to judge? Who's going to judge? And the Bible's clear that actually Jesus is the one uh, who will judge. So in uh, John chapter 5, Jesus is talking and he says this in verse 21. He says, for just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. So Jesus is going to be the one who judges. Um, people will be raised, says, and after that, face judgment and this judgment is entrusted by God to his son. 
So then the question is, well, who's going to be raised? Uh, sorry, who's going to, we, we know who's going to be raised. Who's going to face this judgment? Um, is it just the, the, the bad people? And uh, the Bible actually says that all people will face judgment. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read this. For all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So everybody will, will actually sit before that judgment seat. Even Christians, I don't know if that's occurred to you before, but there'll be a day when you'll stand before that judgment seat and there's no free pass. Every human will be called up, as we saw in our last talk, and everyone will stand on judgment day and the judgment books will be opened. And so there's this picture in Revelation uh, chapter 20 of, of that day when the, these books are opened and these decisions are made. Let me read to you just this um, verse in, uh, these verses from Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. It says this about that day. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake, that, the lake of fire is the second death. We'll get to these things. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there you have these books being opened and people being judged on their lives. And actually what these books are showing are each one of us has to make an account for our sin, our sinfulness. But there is a book, a book of life. And if you're found in that book, then you're saved from this judgment. So the question is, how do you get in that book? How, do, how will you be saved? And of course this is the great Christian doctrine of substitution, of, uh, of someone taking our place. The reason that we can be found in the book of life is because Jesus was judged in our place. Uh, he's punished where we should be. Okay? This is kind of the heart of Christianity. But it, this idea um, is, is through the Bible. Even in the Old Testament it talks about Jesus being punished in our place. So in Isaiah 53, Isaiah writes, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God. He was punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace and it was on him and by his wounds we were healed. So in other words, there's this substitution that's taken place. And so it's this remarkable story in the Bible that the judge is judged in our place if we trust in him. And the New Testament talks about being in Christ um, throughout the pages of the New Testament. And that's the idea that you can be, be in something and then what ha whatever happens to that happens to you. So I've got these bookmarks in my Bible and I mean apart from my, apart from my Bible, you know it's just a piece of paper, doesn't do anything, but I can put it in my Bible and that means that wherever my Bible goes, so the bookmark goes now. 
And that's that's what uh, the New Testament talks about, kind of like that, being in Christ. Because he's been punished. If we're in him through faith, then the punishment has been paid. Uh, The judgment's happened on him. And so uh, Colossians chapter 3 says, For you died and your life is now hidden in Christ. Through faith. It's because of faith you're incorporated into him. And this is what, kind of again, we come back to this idea of inaugurated eschatology. Things have begun. Actually, the judgment of God and the punishment for sin has begun because Jesus has been judged and punished for sin. It's already started. And if we unite ourselves to him, then we have no further punishment or or, uh, punishment to deal with. As we stand on that judgment day, we can say, we're with him. Uh, he's, he's won it for us. I hope I just didn't break that. Um, so, well, what happens at the judgment um, next? Uh, well, our reading that um, Carrie read for us kind of puts it quite clearly, doesn't it? There's a separation between the sheep and the goats. They're divided up. Um, some go to punishment and some go to salvation. And so it's a question, really, it's a question of where you want to be at the, on that day. You can either go to the judgment day um, and face judgment or you can go to the judgment day in Christ, having had the, the, the punishment already uh, paid for. And so uh, we, we went on a family holiday last year to Warwick, took the kids to Warwick Castle. And... Um, has anyone been there? It's a lovely place, good. <laughs> um, when we, we went for a little walk around the town afterwards and I, I came to this kind of main street of Warwick. It's got this big old church in the middle, the Collegiate Church of St Mary or something. It's kind of up, up the hill. But it has this, this big spire has this kind of vestibule area. The road kind of runs in through it to get into the church with the spire above it. And then it goes down, I think it's called Church Street, and at the other end of the road, there's this courthouse. It's an old sandstone courthouse with this beautiful statue of Lady Justice there hanging out from the wall, holding the scales of justice in her hands. And these two buildings look at each other and you can stand in the middle of this street and you can look one way to the statue of Lady Justice, the other way to the steeple of the church. And really that's, as we all stand in our lives, that's how, that's a choice we have to make <coughs> for Judgment Day. Do we want to go this way and, and face the judgment for our sin, stand under Lady Justice, or go this way and stand underneath the cross of Christ where the justice has happened and the punishment has been paid? And so each of us has that decision today to, to make about where we want to stand at our death. Um, so that's, that's kind of judgment. Well, what then happens uh, for those who choose to, to take the justice themselves? Um, what, what's the retribution, which just means justice for that, for sin? Well, it's the, the, the biblical concept of hell. And um, here I was talking to some people before. Um, Again, we remember when the Bible talks about these things, they're, they're abstract concepts for us and the Bible paints pictures that tell truths. But if we take these pictures too far or we take them um, too, 
to uh, and ignore other pictures, then we, we do injustice to the biblical picture. Um, but what I want to say straight up is, this is an undeniable biblical reality. It's there in the pages of the New Testament. Every New Testament author speaks about the future punishment of the wicked. This is not a one-liner somewhere uh, in the Bible. This is, a, this is a reality that the Bible speaks about. Uh, first, I'll start by looking at a couple of the words the New Testament uses for hell. Um, the first word is, there's two words that, it, that are in the New Testament. The first word um, is Hades. Now this, this is a word that I think kind of corresponds to what we were talking about in our last session for the believer who goes when he dies to be with Christ. So it's the place where people wait for final judgment for those who aren't united with Christ in this life, Hades. And it's translated hell. And so it's a similar idea, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is Sheol, which is the place of the dead. But kind of in the Old Testament... In their thinking, everybody went to Sheol, the place of the dead, uh, to await for God. And, and God rescued people from Sheol. But in the New Testament, it seems that only unbelievers go to Hades. And so, um, although the word Hades is translated hell, as you read it in your New Testaments, um, it's really that it refers to the place of the souls of those waiting Christ's return. Uh, it's, it's kind of that intermediate state are waiting for the final, um, the final hell. Um, so, I mean, again, that parable of the rich man and Lazarus kind of shows us something of this. But then you have this second word for hell, which is called Gehenna, which is really um, hell proper, if you like. Um, this is hell after the judgment. What, what's the final state? And it symbolises where non-believers will spend eternity. Uh, after being resurrected and being condemned and the term itself Gehenna actually comes uh, from Old Testament imagery so back in the Old Testament um, there, was a, there was an awful time when the Israelites decided to ditch God and they, would worship, they started worshipping a false god Moloch and sacrificing their children to Moloch right? horrendous kind of apostasy and uh, they did this kind of at this place outside of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom and south of Jerusalem and then it just it became this notorious place and uh, it became a, a place where um, afterwards when Israel returned to God that was the place of curse the Valley of Hinnom Gehenna and so they, they threw all their rubbish there and they burnt their sewage there and they burnt their dead bodies there and so it was about as godless a place as the Jewish mind could conceive of, if you can imagine it. And that's the word that the New Testament uses for hell proper. It's, it's kind of, it pictures that. I mean, just imagine. You've got to think of kind of mutilated corpses and rubbish and dung and flies and maggots. It's awful. That's, that's kind of the picture that Gehenna um, brings to mind. Horror and revulsion. Now, if that were all that the Bible had to say about hell, that would be bad enough. But that's not, that's not all that it has to say. That's, there are a couple of pictures, but the, fi, the, the Bible uses other pictures as well to describe hell. It talks about fire, darkness, um, crushing of grapes in a wine press, being beaten, and these are all pictures of hell, being expelled from a great feast. 
And all of those pictures add something to the mosaic that I was speaking about before, what we can say about hell. And I've kind of whittled down four things that we can say about the experience of hell. Um, and they kind of they all contained actually probably in a summary in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And Paul says that um, what will happen is God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his light. Punished, everlasting destruction and shut out. So they're the four things actually. So first of all, hell is punishment. Um, God will actively punish his enemies in hell. So it's not just a case of leaving them to their own devices, uh, letting them go, but repeated in the New Testament is this idea that, that they'll be punished uh, there'll be retribution in hell. Um, so that, that's the, the picture you kind of get of Gehenna being in that place. And if you believe the cartoons, you, you think, well, devil's in charge of hell and God's in charge of heaven. Hell's over there and heaven's over here and they, you know, they've got their bosses and whatnot. But actually, um, the biblical picture is that actually, no... Hell is part of the kingdom of heaven even. It's like the jail in the kingdom of heaven and God oversees the punishment that goes on there. Okay, That's something to keep in mind. Hell is punishment. Another, word that the, another concept that the New Testament uses is, is destruction. Um, you know, fire burns things up. They'll be destroyed. And um, sometimes people take destruction on its own and say, well, what that means is people will cease to exist. Um, those people who don't believe in Jesus. They'll be annihilated. Um, but actually, the, that kind of, um, again, takes one point without reference to the other points the Bible makes. But also, it, it doesn't really do justice to the biblical concept of destruction because in the Bible, destruction means um, not just getting rid of something. It actually means the ruin of something. It's ruined. It, it, um, it, it's more than um, just... Failure to exist. It's kind of, it's um, the the ruin, the the end of it in terms of uh, its kind of um, possibilities. And so, I mean, when the Bible talks about destruction, it's not talking about annihilation. When the Bible talks about death, it's not talking about oblivion. It's talking about a separation or a departure. So, um, the first death is separation from our bodies. The second death that we read about in Revelation. Well, that's separation from God. Okay? Um, so it's not annihilation, that's, uh, uh, but destruction is that. Okay? So this is the next point. Exclusion. Um, so hell will be a place excluded of separation from the goodness of God, if you like. Kind of contradicts what I just said about heaven being, uh, sorry, hell being in part of the kingdom of God, but it's going to be away from God's goodness. And the Bible <coughs> makes this clear. So, um, in, in Jesus tells lots of parables about a feast. You know, the kingdom of heaven is going to be like a feast, but people are going to be shut out. Um, in Matthew chapter eight, uh, I think I put a bookmark in here. Um, it talks about the, the feast. The people will be drawn into the banquet with uh, Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, here we go, eleven and twelve. He says. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the, in the kingdom of heaven. 
But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's this good banquet going on but some will be excluded. There's this exclusion. And so, I mean, tomorrow we're going to talk about heaven and that's going to be really good. (laughs) Don't worry. Um, But hell really is the opposite of heaven. If heaven's kind of the goodness, having all the goodness of God, hell is the, the opposite. None of the goodness. Um, and so uh, that, that, just that story there, I mean, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, so it tells us a couple of things about hell, doesn't it? It tells us um, that there's going to be grief, endless grief. Um, I mean, I'm from Australia. Australian men don't cry. I think English people don't show emotion very well either. But in hell, even Australian men will cry. They'll weep. Um, it's going to be awful. And not only cry, there'll be bitterness and anger, gnashing of teeth. You know, ah, oh, they just almost can't express the anger that they have towards God. There'll be a sense of loss and a sense of rage. Um, so, uh, when I was your age. I met my wife on a weekend away just like this. <laughs> we were at uni, we came away on a weekend and uh, we both went to a church just like your church at Fullwood actually and uh, we both were interested in inviting our friends along to events just like the ones that you, you've got coming up that we were talking about this morning. And my wife invited a friend along um, and she was coming along to stuff and eventually she was from a non-Christian family, a non-Christian background and eventually she said, look, I think, I mean, if, if Christianity involves hell and my family aren't Christian, I'd prefer to go to hell and be with them. That was her conclusion. But she's completely misunderstood hell because it's a separation not just from God but from everything of God's goodness, including relationships, including family, including friends. Um, it's, it's, it's a place of exclusion. And so... Uh, there'll be nothing left but tears but tears and anger. So C.S. Lewis once, exp- once explained hell is locked from the inside. People are there and they lock the doors to lock themselves in. And that's kind of true because people send themselves to hell but it doesn't do justice really to the fact that they are also sent there and punished at the same time. They choose to be away from God so God gives them what they want forever because that's sin really, to ignore God. God gives them that but at the same time, they're punished for their sin. Okay, final um, thing about the experience of hell, it'll be eternal. Um, endless duration. So, I mean, we have to kind of come to this conclusion if we believe heaven is going to be endless because hell and heaven are put side by side in that the, the last sentence of the reading that Carrie read for us, it's, what does it say? Then they will, they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. So if you want to say that one's not actually eternal, you have to say the other is. They're, they're put side by side for a reason. The symmetry's simple. Um, and so the Bible actually just repeatedly talks about um, the fact that hell's endless. Um, so, like I say, tomorrow we're talking about heaven. And heaven is better than we can imagine. That's the picture the Bible paints. Better than we can imagine. But the Bible paints a picture of hell too and, and the picture is that it's worse than we can imagine. It's a horrible place. And we've really just seen a glimpse but it's awful and it's, you know, there's no jokes about 
hell really and we have to face up to what the Bible says about it. Um, but there are several objections even by Christians, even by evangelical Christians about hell. It just seems too abhorrent um, for Christians to believe and two, they fall into two categories I think. The first one has to do is that, that it's not just, it doesn't seem just. 75 years of sinning against God compared to eternity in hell. That's not, that's not fair, doesn't seem. Um, but I think actually uh, we need to understand a few things about justice. Uh, first of all, um, God just doesn't send people to hell. He sends sinners to hell. Remember that. And part of our problem is that we don't have in our heads just how awful sin is, how terrible a thing sin is. You see, uh, the badness of a crime kind of has to do with um, the dignity of the thing that's uh, crimed, you know, uh, offended against. So, I mean, lawyers will be able to explain this better than me, but um, if, I, if I have a mosquito on my arm and I kill it, yeah, fine, no one's going to... If I, get a, if I get a kitten and start if I'm killing it, everyone will kind of shudder. But, you know, if I get a child... Do you know, the, the levels go up, right? And, and then we have God, who is the most dignified and glorious being in existence, and we rebel against him and we shove it in his face and we think, well, it's no biggie, you know? No big deal. Well, it is a big deal. The Bible makes that clear. Sin is a very serious, big, uh, very serious deal um, because God is so important. Um, and so that's the, that's the first um, thing to say. The, the seriousness of an offence is determined by the dignity of the person offended against. And uh, fo- kind of following on from that is the view that actually, you know, as humans we're all just really lovable people. <laughs> um, but the Bible says, well, no, you're, we're, we're all sinners. We're all marred in this sin. Uh, thirdly, It doesn't take into account that justice doesn't have to do with the time of an offence being committed. Um, So it's got to do with the offence itself. So, for example, we would think it grossly unjust if, um, say, I took five quid every week from my employer for 20 years, right? Took it out of the till. And that's that's happened over a long period of time. But we would think it was unjust if I got the same punishment or a worse punishment because it happened over a longer period of time than someone who just kind of pulled a trigger and shot someone in the head, right? It doesn't have to do with the time that it took to commit the crime. It has to do with the crime that's committed. And so uh, justice is like that. It's not the fact that 75 years of sin. It's the fact that it's sin against God that means that this is a just punishment. Uh, fourthly, uh, there's no sense that even in hell people return to God. Um, in, in Revelation chapter 16 you get this, this picture of people in hell and they're in hell and what they do uh, in verse 21 is they just keep cursing God even more in hell. And so their rebellion continues on if you like. Um, further on the um, issue of justice and hell, I think the Bible paints a picture of the fact that there will actually be justice within hell. <laughs> so Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 12 of uh, a, a, ma- a master going away 
and leaving some servants in charge and he gives them direct instructions, look after the house. And these servants, instead of waiting for the master to come back, starts to take liberties and starts to beat other servants, starts to do the wrong thing, squander the master's thing. Anyway, the master comes back and he says, well, the people who will be, the people who knew the master's will and deliberately didn't do it, they will be beaten, beaten with many blows. But those who didn't, uh, didn't know the will, the, the will will be beaten with few blows. So there's a sense that even in hell there's levels of punishment, if you like. So there's justice even in, in hell, I think you can say from the Bible. Um, but also, uh, finally, one of the things that we, we have to remember is that God is the God of justice. And even though it might be hard for us to, to get this in our head because our picture of sin is so small, um, we know that God is the God of justice and we kind of, it might come to a point where we have to say with Abraham who said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We have to leave it up to him. Now he's, he's true and he's just, much more just than we are. <coughs> and so in one sense, we, we, we can entrust this whole thing to him. Now, the second of the main um, arguments against hell is that it's not loving of God. Um, how could a loving God do this, this horrible, have this horrible place? Uh, and the things to say about that is that it, wouldn't, it would be a failure of God's love if there wasn't hell. Um, evil needs to be done away with for heaven to be a reality. Uh, heaven can't be heaven without evil taken out. And so, uh, so hell is part of God's loving purpose um, for humanity and his creation. Uh, secondly, and this is, I don't have a Bible verse for this, but if hell is part of the kingdom of heaven and God is over hell, um, I think we can say that there will be grace in some sense uh, in hell because God will be God. Um, and all the way through the Bible you get a sense of even when there was a punishment, there was some kind of mitigation and graciousness of, of God. And so I think God won't change his character and become kind of sadistic and vindictive uh, when hell comes about. God will still be God. And the third thing to say when people say um, there can't be a hell because um, God is loving is to say, well, God is so loving, he went there so we don't have to. That's, that's the truth of Christianity. Jesus went there so we don't have to. That's how much God loves us. And he hung on that cross so that we didn't have to face hell. Um, Jesus didn't think lightly of hell. He spoke about it often, but he went there for us. Uh, he cried, he, he went there um, for, for, to save us from it. The cry of dereliction is the cry of God's son experiencing hell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why was he there? Because of love. So you can't say that a, you know, a God who, who goes to hell himself doesn't love. All right? Now, a couple of things from this kind of really heavy talk. First of all, um, perhaps you haven't united yourself with Christ. I'm not sure of everybody in this room. Perhaps you're not at that place. Um, 
Well, I want to say that this uh, truth, this reality, what I'm talking about, maybe you haven't made a decision for Christ to be united with him, to stand under the, the, um, the cross instead of under the, the, the Lady Justice. Um, if, if you're still in doubt about this, I want to say keep thinking it through. The, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. Um, perhaps some people haven't put themselves into Jesus' hand. Well, I want to say, do it. Do it this weekend. Um, entrust yourself to him. Be joined to Jesus. Um, Jesus said uh, in Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate. And then in, in what is quite tragic words, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only few find it. So there's this narrow gate with Christ and, and if you're not through that gate, I plead with you, come through the gate. The stakes are that high. Now, don't mess around. Um, but on the other side, what about for believers, which I'm kind of taking most of us are? How should we kind of deal with this reality? Well, first of all, the reality of hell, I think, ought to make us extra thankful that we don't have to face it. Now, we deserve to go there now, we deserve that condemnation but as we read in the Bible there is now no condemnation for those who are with Christ Jesus. We don't face it. Um, secondly on that, well, we ought never to speak of hell lightly or smugly. Um, it's too serious a matter. Uh, never speak as though it doesn't matter that people will go to hell. Um, we have to speak of this truth but never, never in a brash way. This is kind of the reality that ought to bring tears to our eyes <coughs> when, we, when we know of it. And so at our church in Australia, we had a, a mission and we were um, just handing out flyers at our local shopping centre, just you know, soft um, stuff about Christianity and giving a piece of fruit. Take a fresh look at life, it was. And um, there was, so we had some, a, a Bible college um, were there and they were... Just, you know, normal handing them out. But there was a girl from the Bible College and after a little while, she kind of burst into tears and kind of um, came aside and said, you know, what's wrong? Has someone been mean to you? someone been rude to you? And um, she said, no, I just... They don't know what they're saying no to. They, they don't know what they're in for as they kind of just brush you aside. And it brought tears to her eyes. And really, that ought to be the reaction um, for all of us as, as this reality hits home. Uh, it's not that we'll be sad in heaven. Um, it, we, we know that there'll be no tears or crying or mourning there. Um, we'll, we'll know that God has done what is right, but we need to feel the weight of this and it should it'll motivate us, actually. Um, but there's something else I want to say. What about um, for those of us who are believers who have had people die and we're not sure where we stand. And this is not an abstract truth. I mean, personally, I have two grandparents who I have no assurance that they were Christians um, who've died and um, my, my wife's brother died a couple of years ago and no, certainly every time I spoke to him he was cynical against Christianity. What am I supposed to do with this truth and those loved ones? Um, and I think the answer there is, uh, there's a couple of things. First, um, it's, it, they have until their final breath and I don't know their hearts actually 
So remember that thief on the cross right at the last moment. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so I don't know where they stood as they breathed their last breath. And so I can, I can have hope that, there was, that the option was open to them. Even though the last conversation I had, it seemed as though they weren't there. The option was open to them. His grace can save people. He can call people right at that last moment to himself. You remember the, the parable Jesus told of the labourers in the vineyard and even the ones that came right at the last hour got the same pay as those who'd been there all day. <coughs> and so it's true for salvation too. Coming right at the last moment. Uh, and the second thing is what I was saying before. I know God. I know that he's merciful and I know that he's loving and I know that he always does what's right. And so I need to entrust myself to him. But the third thing that I think um, this truth does for believers is that it, does, it motivates us um, to share what we know. And so Paul says in his letter uh, to Timothy, he's right at the end of his life to, in 2 Timothy, he's in a jail cell and he's encouraging this young Timothy to, to go on in the ministry and he says this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead? Because God will judge the living and the dead and in view of his, his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. So because of this reality, judgment, retribution, here's a charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Because of this, well, I mean, we have the message, we have the, the message to save people from this. Jesus Christ. And if this truth isn't enough to motivate us to do it, what is? And so that's the final thing that I think this truth needs to really work in our hearts you know, as we, we think about the people in our lives who don't know God. Well, preach the word. In light of this truth, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Share the truth and God will call people into his kingdom. Uh, let's pray that uh, he might do that through us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you um, so much that you are a God of justice, a God of perfect justice. And even though sometimes it's hard for us to grapple with and understand, uh, we know that you always do right. And Father, help us to entrust ourselves to you. Uh, help us to know your love that you sent Jesus to the cross so that we might not have to face your punishment. And Father, please help us to love other people, to share that good news uh, so that they might not face that punishment also. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.